Well, thank you to Scott and our musicians. Uh, turn up in your Bibles, if you have one, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and you'll find that on page 956 in the church Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, our vision statement at uh, Chalmers is to reach, to build, to train, and to send, which is, I guess, what the New Testament encourages a local church to do, built on the foundations of the simple biblical gospel, the Bible, and praying. For the next year, the elders want to encourage us all as a church corporately and individually, to take one step forward in our personal evangelism. Their desire and our desire is to see people come to living faith in Jesus Christ. For a term each year, the whole church studies together one part of the Bible, and that begins today uh, in our small groups and on Sundays, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10. And if you've glanced at the reading, you might think we're crazy. How does it begin? Now concerning food offered to idols. Uh, a motto series, we call it a motto series when the whole church studies the same thing on food sacrificed to idols. Were that the case, that would be crazy, or at least a little eccentric. Let me reassure you that food offered to idols was a big issue for the church in Corinth in their context, but the principle underlying the presenting issue is of critical importance to us all. So let me pray, then we'll read the first three verses, we'll look at them, and we'll get into this section of God's Word and the Modus series together. Our Father, we pray for the motto series ahead of us on Sundays and in small groups, humbly and earnestly asking that it would help us move forward as individuals and as a church in our evangelism. For we have the most important news in all the world to tell, to go and tell people about Jesus and His gospel of salvation. So will you teach us and give us willing hearts to obey for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, before we plunge in and read, can I encourage you that now would be a perfect time to join up with a small group if you are not already uh, part of one. It will benefit you, and more importantly, it will benefit uh, others. Uh, small groups are getting up and running now in the morning series. Student groups start this Tuesday, 6.45. Postgrads and young workers also here on Tuesday, 6.45. Now, let's read. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, and that little phrase, now concerning, appears a number of times in the letter. Almost certainly Paul is responding to specific matters raised by the church in Corinth, and we assume a letter, his letter to them in response to a letter from them. That seems probable. And so he writes, now concerning the matter you raised, food offered to idols, we know that, this is a quote, I think, from their letter, all of us possess knowledge. 
This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known uh, by God. Now, if you look at the back page of the service sheet, you'll see some notes that get us into um, our motto series. I'm going to start at the bottom of the page because it was printed before I had finished my prep. So the bottom of the page, and let's start with the three verses. Let's get the principle of the verses in our heads and our hearts, and then we'll understand, I think, more helpfully um, where we're going to go with this uh, motto uh, series. Concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, the point of these verses, as we enter into what will be a, a term of discussing uh, quite complex things, quite, quite, quite um, sensitive things, where we kind of draw the line in our culture, how we live, how we reach out to unbelievers and yet not compromise our faith, how we uh, live as a church that is neither isolated from the world and therefore silent and invisible, and yet not becoming a church that is so up to our eyes in the world that we are equally silent and invisible. How do we run this line of distinctiveness? It's a matter of what we know. We need to know the Bible well, but it's also a matter of whom we love. Knowledge without love is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Love without knowledge is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Now, when it came to the matter of food sacrifice to idols, the Christians in Corinth were confident in their knowledge in this area. The, the church in Corinth was a, a kind of arrogant place to be opinionated and a certain. All of us possessed knowledge, they claimed. They were absolutely sure of their position, of their rightness. If you had a discussion on this, over tea and coffee in Corinth, they would say, look, we know. Let me show you. We're certain. I understand this. Let me explain it to you. Just glance down to verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. I mean, the issue of food sacrifice to idols, if you lived in Corinth, the temple in the city kind of dominated everything. If you went to a religious festival... Um, there would be food sacrificed to idols. If you went out for dinner in Corinth, you'd go to a restaurant in the temple. That's where the restaurants were. The food would be sacrificed to idols. If you went to Tesco in Corinth, apart from their own brand, it would all be food sacrificed to idols. And if you went out for dinner to your mate's house, it would be food sacrificed to idols. So it was a big issue. And their view, verse 4, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And of course, they're right. That's true. Broadly speaking, that's right. We know. This is an area of freedom, they said. But Paul cautions them, verse 9, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. What does that mean? Okay, say you go out for dinner in Corinth, and you go to one of these restaurants in the temple, and you're with someone who's just become a Christian. 
And for years, they've been going to these restaurants and to the temple, having food sacrificed to idols because they worship these idols. And here you are, and you're taking them back. Now, you're free to do that. There's nothing wrong because it's just idols. It's just food. But is it, is it wise? Is it going to cause them to trip up? That's the point Paul is making. And then just glance at verses 10 to 12. If anyone sees that you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Now, much more on that next week and in the coming weeks. And Paul is not saying, and we need to double underscore this, that knowledge is wrong. He's not saying that we should stop studying the Bible. He's not saying that we need to stop growing in our knowledge of God and His purposes and just love one another instead. He's not contradicting himself in a letter where he has emphasized the importance of knowing God and His Word. Paul's concern is why we acquire knowledge. And what do we do with it? Does it puff us up with pride? Oh, I'm certain that there's nothing wrong with eating food sacrificed to idols. Let me show you five Bible texts that prove I'm right. Or does it lead to love? Love for God, love for our fellow believers, and love for unbelievers. Now, that's such a helpful principle for a church at any time. It's such a helpful principle for a small group at the start of a new session. So do your prep when you go to your small group. Come knowledgeable about what the Bible says. But don't come armed with that knowledge to pelt texts at people. Come with knowledge and disarmed by love for your brothers and sisters in Christ and for unbelievers. Now, that's uh, Paul's way into uh, this issue. Let's uh, try now to expand out as I try and get us into this uh, motto series over the term. Now, you'll see there at the top where it says motto. That's a kind of aim for the series. Uh, and like uh, all good detective novels, uh, Agatha Christie novels, turn to the last page first, and it saves you a lot of time. Here's the answer, okay? This is why we're studying this. And the reason we're telling you this is that Rog in particular and others have given loads and loads of months of prep for the Bible studies so that we really are clear as to, as to what our prayer is. Our prayer is that by the end of this model series, over the next two to three months, as individuals and as a church, we will be imitating the apostle and there in the Lord Jesus, whose representative he is, using my freedoms, I'll tell you what that means, using my freedoms not for myself, but selflessly for the glory of God and the salvation of others. Now, can I encourage you to pray about this for yourself and in your small groups. 
that the result of studying these chapters together, we will be more like Paul, more like Jesus, using our freedoms not for ourselves, but selflessly for God's glory and with the salvation of others in mind. Let me explain what my freedoms are. What does that phrase mean? Well, it is stuff in the Christian life and as a church that we are free to do. So the Bible doesn't say you shouldn't do that or you can't do that, so you're free to do it. Indeed, the Bible might say that you can do that. Now, we'll discover that there are areas of life that we think we are free in as Christians to do what we discern is right where we're not. We will see that. And we'll also discover that there are areas that Christians disagree on as to whether they fall within the realm of Christian uh, freedoms. So we're on sensitive ground. And so when you go to your small group, you see why we had these verses at the beginning? Why Paul puts them at the beginning of this section? You go to your small group and you don't go in and say, look, I know and I'm right and I don't care what you think. You say, let's look together at the Bible. Let's pray about this. Let's talk about this. Let's be open and honest about it. These are hard issues. Now, within the realm of what are genuine areas of Christian freedom, and I'll illustrate some for you later on this morning, the point is that I am to use my freedoms not for myself, not selfishly, but for God's glory and for the salvation of others. That reflects the message of the letter as a whole. The Corinthian problem, and I have taken this from one of the others on the team writing about this, the Corinthian problem was that their Christianity was me-shaped rather than cross-shaped. And, and that's a great uh, 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 gauge to put into the oil tank of a church. Will it come out me-shaped or cross-shaped when it's dipped into each of our lives? Is my whole Christian life about me, what I like, what I want, what I will do? Or is my whole Christian life one of sacrificial service for others? in the church to which I belong, in my small group, and the Lord Jesus. Let me illustrate that. Me-shaped Christian faith might see gathering together with other Christians on a Sunday morning or in our small groups as a place for my needs to be met. Now, our needs are met. But cross-shaped Christian faith sees gathering together with other Christians on Sundays and in my small group, as a place for me to serve them and help them in their walk with Jesus, even if that comes at a cost to me. That's the difference. Let me say that again with two different tones. Am I not free to do what I want in this area? Yes, I am, and I'm going to do it, and I don't care what you think. Now, you might not say it like that, but you might think it. Or am I not free? Yes, I am. But I'm just not sure how helpful it will be for them. And this takes us into the realm of preference. What I like, my preferences. Let me just go for a hot potato. I like this or that kind of music in church. Or I like informality. Or I like formality. No, I've never met anyone who loves 
every style of music, they would be a robot. I've never met anyone who loves football, like in a general concept. They attach their love to a team. That's human nature. It's not a bad thing. I've never met anyone who, who loves being formally dressed and informally dressed at the same time. Am I not free? Am I not free to choose a church where I like the music? Yes, you are. But how will I use my freedoms? For myself or for the sake of others? Just on the music issue, Scott does a grand job for us in leading it up. And uh, just let me encourage you that he wrestles with how many old ones have we had, how many new ones have we had, how many bass guitars have we had, drums, all the rest of it. And it, it, we try our very, very best to, to try to respond to everybody's preferences. But what we love to see and love to have as a church, that, that, that what's the difference? When you go to the back at the end of the service, I, I couldn't stand the music this morning. You don't, why don't you just keep that to yourself? And through gritted teeth say, to be fair, it's balanced. And we're a church. That's the realm of this stuff. And you see how liberating that is to think like that. And how healthy it is for a church. And how uniting it is for a church. And how strong it makes you as a church. And how it liberates you to take one big step forward in evangelism as a church. Now, another way to get into this is to think, you'll see the heading there, about how we work out our faith in a secular, godless culture, an idolatrous culture, when all manner of things are worshipped other than the living God. In Corinth, it was food sacrificed to idols everywhere. In our culture, it would be, what would the idols be? They would be leisure, celebrity, materialism, image, success, work, and so on and so uh, forth. Just let me say that uh, there was certainly somebody in the first service for whom food sacrifice to idols was a significant issue because they had folks in their family who were uh, following another religion. And they themselves had been converted to Christ out of that religion. And this is a real live issue for them. And it can be for, but for most of us, the, the, the idols we come in contact with day in, uh, day out are, are, are different. They're celebrity, leisure, materialism, image, success, work, and so on. And as Christians, we are called to live distinctively in the world. We're not to be worldly, but nor are we to withdraw. Uh, I'm doing a couple of uh, weekends for students this term, and they've set me Daniel, Daniel 1. They, they want me to to, to speak on, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal. They want me to speak on the line you run, not to be out of the world, but not to be in the world. And they want answers, chapter and verse. What do we do? Now, you're not going to get answers like that. Why did Daniel do this and not that? You'll get principles so that we can live in our idolatrous culture, which is not Christian and is thoroughly secular, at the point where we are neither isolated nor compromised. 
For both extremes, isolation and compromise, we are silenced and invisible. How do we live distinctively as Christians um, in the world? We want to know where the lines are. So, for example, should we go to our non-Christian friends, stag or Hindu? Uh, whenever that's happened to me, it doesn't happen anymore. It used to. <laughs> I don't get invited as a minister now. I do have friends, though. <laughs> I used to just not go. It was just simpler for me just to find an excuse. But, but should I have gone? And if so, how, do you, how are you distinctive? What, what do you do in a context like that? Do we go to a colleague's wedding at work when they are marrying someone of the same sex? These are real questions that people are being asked now. Um, how do we engage without compromising? They're big questions, and there are plenty other ones. Can Christians drink alcohol, and if so, how much? Notice the question I've carefully phrased. Can Christians drink alcohol, and if so, how much? Should Christians play sport on Sundays if it means they can never get to church? Can Christians participate in multi-faith events? How nice a car, how so stuff should I buy as a Christian? We're on sensitive ground here, perhaps. I don't think we are. Um, never mind anyway. <laughs> there, are, there are lots of streets in our city where, where buying a certain kind of car is a brilliant way to show how distinctive you are as a Christian. I mean, there are lots of practical ways we do that. How many holidays should I go on as a Christian? I go on holiday. I think holidays are great. Perhaps a little overrated, but holidays are great. You need to have holidays for rest. But let's imagine you're a sort of young, retired person, and there's a weekend free there, and there's a weekend free there. and Well, let's go away and... And you're thinking about coming back on a Sunday, but, but you don't. That's great some of the time, but not all of the time. Why? Because the people in your church family miss you. They need you. You bless them. You help them. You encourage them. You pray for them. You follow up with them. How many hours should I work as a Christian? You could say, well, I'm free to do what I want. I will be the first out of the office. I will be the last out of the office. You could justify it both ways. Let me take you into a home group again, or a small group, where there are working people. Say there's some people who have retired and who worked perhaps in a slightly different culture to the working environment now. And there's, a, there's somebody in the group who's just in the middle of the their traineeship as a lawyer, and they're on the banking team, and they're working flat out, because that's just what you do. How unhelpful it would be if the older Christian says, we're worried about your commitment because you're leaving the office at nine, and you're missing your small group every week. You don't love Jesus. That's why it needs to be knowledge, and love. Because you might feel as an older Christian, look, there, there is, that it would be good if from occasionally you did leave and come. We want to help you get to that point. 
Because Jesus is the most important thing. See how the discussion can be done in a loving way or an unloving way. Now, how do I use my freedoms as a Christian? Think, you see on the sheet, the salvation of others, other believers in your local church and unbelievers. If I do this as a Christian, is it going to help other believers and is it going to help unbelievers? Or expressing it like this, more in the tenor of 1 Corinthians, is it going to trip up or cause other Christians to stumble? Is it going to cause unbelievers to stumble? Is it actually going to be unhelpful? Now, who are the other believers? Think of your local church, the people in your small group, or your hall group, or whatever. How am I going to use my freedoms with respect to my Christian brothers and sisters? I might be absolutely clear in my mind that this is an area of Christian freedom, but is it going to cause them to stumble? Say a Christian wants to meet up with you to read the Bible. And you say, come on, let's go to the, let's, let's meet in the pub and we'll read the Bible. There's nothing, personally, I think, and when I could take you to Bible verses, I think that's okay. But what if that other Christian in that environment is unhelpful for them? Because before they were a Christian, when they went to the pub, it wasn't one drink, it was five. Is that helpful? But you're free to do it. Think of the salvation of others. Are you going to trip them up? Think of the salvation of other believers and unbelievers. Now, let's expand on this just a little bit more. Uh, Paul has another question in these chapters. Yes, it's an area of Christian freedom, but is it helpful for you? Is it helpful for you? Is it going to trip you up? You're absolutely free as a Christian to join a mountaineering club and go away every weekend. There's nothing in the Bible that says your salvation is dependent on you being here at half eleven on a Sunday. There isn't. But you know in your heart that that's not good for you in the long term. Now, don't mishear that. It's not anyone saying you shouldn't do it. People do, and it's a good thing. It's a rich thing. But am I using my freedoms for my spiritual good? And the big overarching principle, does it glorify God. Will it honor God? Is it something he will be pleased about? Now you'll see on the notes in the middle of the page a list of questions to think through. Let me run through them with an example in view. And just to say all the examples I am using today, they're not sort of ones that just suddenly pop into my mind. We're carefully thinking through the examples we are using, thoughtfully and prayerfully, not intended to be provocative, but equally not intended to be hypothetical. These are real examples. So here's an example. Your small group wants to invite people to one of the carol services at Christmas, which are only about eight weeks away. It's suggested you meet beforehand for a drink 
in one of the bistros or pubs in Morningside. Is this an area of Christian freedom? Well, let's say what perhaps most of us would say, yes. Is that something the Bible would say you shouldn't do? Well, I think most of us, many of us would say, no, it doesn't say that. So it is an area of Christian freedom. But here are the questions to ask. Does it glorify God? Does it honor God? Will it cause that person in my small group to stumble as a Christian? Perhaps because they've recently become a Christian and in the past going out for a drink was never one drink. Or it may be that someone in your small group was an alcoholic and so that environment would be unhelpful. Will it cause that person to stumble? Remember, your concern is for their spiritual well-being. Will it knock them back spiritually? Now, that is not the same thing as do they agree or not, or is it their preference that Christians do that or not? That's a very different set of questions. I'm not so concerned for another believer who just thinks, or perhaps maybe has got a blind spot about something. That's not the same thing as is it actually going to cause them to trip up? That's what matters. What about my own salvation? Is it good for me? Have I thought about that? And am I concerned for the salvation of unbelievers? The small group discussion might go like this. And it would be a loving discussion, I hope. Well, why is, why is John suggesting this? The reason he's suggesting it is that uh, people will come. I mean, our friends who aren't Christians, they will feel really comfortable in that environment. It's normal for them after work to go there. Some of us will drink, others won't. Some of us will, others won't. But that's okay. No one will be under any pressure to do anything they're uncomfortable with. But it will be great to get to know these folk in an environment they are comfortable in, and it's great that they'll come to the carol service. That's the discussion in the group. And you can sense, perhaps, there are nods around the room, and people say, well, it is an area of Christian freedom, and we've had a good discussion, and we think it's a good thing to do. But then you catch someone's eye in the group. This may not happen, but you might. And, and he or she says, look, I really, really am struggling with this. I don't think we should do this, at which point you don't do it. Probably. You see the point? Is it an area of Christian freedom? Yes. So why is there an issue? Am I not free? You are. But are you concerned for the glory of God, the salvation of your other Christians, your own salvation? And am I concerned about the salvation of unbelievers? Now, why have I put that one in bold? not in bold in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. They're all in bold. I've put it in bold because maybe that is something we are not as concerned about as a church as we should be. How much time are we spending with people who aren't Christians? How well do we know people who aren't Christians? Am I willing to use my freedoms for the sake of the salvation of unbelievers? Am I getting confused between my freedoms 
and my preferences? Am I really far more isolated than I should be? Am I keeping myself pure because I'm just unwilling to get onto that risky ground? Now, for some of us, we might need to think through carefully and prayerfully whether the views we have uh, are right. I have been challenged personally in one very practical way. Um, You may come across uh, in the sporting world some athlete that comes out of retirement, um, usually in their mid-30s. Well, I'm doing it um, in my early 50s um, in my own limited way starting to run again, I hope, although it's quite sore. Um, Somebody said to me, and it's niggled away at me, you're going to be joining a running club then so you can meet non-Christians. What a great question that is. Don't go to the gym with a set of headphones on. Join a class. Am I concerned? Now that's an area of absolute Christian freedom, isn't it? Am I using my freedoms? It's not all about complex issues. Now, we don't embark on this model series lightly. It is risky, but we embark on it as elders because we believe the church is mature and wise and cross-shaped and not me-shaped, and we really want to think through how is it that we draw this line in our idolatrous culture so that men and women become Christians. That's our desire. We've got to be with them. Let me finish with um, some examples of the kind of things that I fully expect not to be heard in small groups. This is what you would hear in Corinth in discussions around this stuff. I am not going to that event with others in my small group and their non-Christian friends because I do not think the venue they are meeting in is appropriate. Now, why am I using that as an example? If that's the end of the discussion, something's gone wrong in the discussion. It's perfectly appropriate to say that in the discussion, lovingly. That person who says that in that way is one step from leaving or being excluded. I've been invited to a wedding, and people are asking me if it's wise for me to go, given the nature of the wedding. To be honest, I haven't given it a moment's thought, and it's none of their business anyway. Or I can't wait for Redeemer to go. Redeemer is a plant from Chalmers, three months away. Um, It'll be great to have smaller numbers at church again. I prefer it when I know everyone. It'll be great to get back to one service. But what about if you go back to one service and and the singing goes up a notch and it's wonderful and there's no seats and people who come who aren't Christians just run a mile. Oh, but I like one service. I like being together. In fact, I've never been behind the church plant. It's a load of money, a load of hassle. There'll be few people here to share their work when they're gone. Why might you think that? Because you do not have a concern I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that, 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 that well, there is. You've got to plan a church. It is a biblical thing. But, but where are our concerns? 
Or I love the fact that everyone in my small group is pretty similar to me and everyone gets on so well. I hope it doesn't get messed up with someone new this term or someone different coming. You're not going to say that out loud, but you're going to feel it inside. I think it's ridiculous that some Christians have hang-ups about going to a Thai restaurant because it's got a statue of Buddha. I am not going to rearrange the small group social again for him. That's a real faff. They just need to grow up. Now, expressed a very different way, in a loving way, that might be a conversation you would want to have with someone that's just got a blind spot. But don't bash them so they leave. Someone has suggested doing children's work at both morning services or changing one of the service times to late afternoon because it will help with evangelism. I'm not up for that. I like things the way they are. If they are really interested, these non-Christians, they will make the effort to come to the service that does the kids' work. Christians who think it's wrong to go clubbing or the pub are just out of touch. That's how you meet people who aren't Christians. And back to the old favorites. I hope the music on Sunday doesn't have old hymns or unaccompanied psalms. I really don't like singing them. And over there in the other coffee station, someone's saying to somebody else, all we have is guitars, drums, 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 and modern songs. I miss the organ and the old hymns. And sure as anything, after service one, two people spoke to me. Both of them said these two things. We're so wired, aren't we? And all you need to be doing is talking to a new Christian who suddenly goes home thinking, well, that's what Christianity is about, people who can't agree on what they sing. I'm not staying around for that. Am I not free? You are. But am I concerned for God's glory? Am I concerned about the salvation of others? Am I concerned about my own salvation? Am I concerned about the salvation of... Um, don't get bogged down in endless discussions in your small groups. Get on to the principles. Don't come full of knowledge to persuade people you are right. Come with knowledge. But do not be armed with that knowledge. Be disarmed by love for those you are with. And that attitude will allow these discussions to flourish, which will, individually and corporately, enable us to take a step forward in evangelism and see more people come to faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that over these coming weeks as we discuss these uh, complex issues and areas for us as Christians living distinctively in the world, you would lead us to have good and honest discussions, but in a loving way that we would take steps forward individually and together as a church in our personal evangelism. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.